0: One of the advantages of uh, writing up stories from my travels is that I can remember what happened to me. (laughs) You might think that's very strange, but when I came to write Guinea Pig for Lunch, I kept notes as I travelled in different places, and it was absolutely fascinating to go back and uh, discover things I'd forgotten, uh, things I'd got uh, done Chinese whispers with myself, to, uh, you know, where my version of the story was in my brain didn't match what was written in my notes. And it was quite an interesting mental battle to decide the notes must be what was right, because that's what I wrote on the day that it happened. So that's one reason I just want to refer uh, to this now, because I wanted just to start in Peru, and this is what I was saying to, to Ruth and to all of you, that my, in my work for Tearfund, that did bring me into contact with people who would now be, in my life if you like, characterised as being part of the persecuted church. In Peru I met uh, a pastor called Alfredo, Vasquez. And this was the story he told me, because I wrote it down at the time. We were in the middle of a service, and I was preaching when the terrorists threw a bomb into the church and came in shooting, he recalled. I was hit in the arm. All around, there were screams and shots. I returned to the pulpit and was grabbed and dragged outside. A gorilla shot me again, and as I fell to the ground, I shouted, glory to God. I lay there bleeding as a brother died beside me. I still can actually feel what I felt when he first told me that story. Fancy, imagine being in a church in the middle of the sermon and people rushing in through the door and starting to fire. And he did something that nobody's ever done to me before or since. As I was talking to him, he started to pull his shirt out of his trousers and I had no idea what was going on. And then suddenly he hauled his shirt up and he showed me the scar right across uh, his abdomen. Uh, where one of the guys had hit him with a machete and left him sliced open and and dying and he was only saved because somebody came and just staunched the blood flow for quite considerable time until the paramedics got there and were able to save him. That was a reminder to me of something which in a sense I've become more used to in the last three or four years. There are people for whom going to church is a dangerous experience in our world today. A little bit before that I'd been in Ethiopia, and again I've just uh, got the note here, Daniel was a guy I met, and uh, Daniel was uh, a church leader. He was in Ethiopia, in fact he was in the part of Ethiopia that's now become Eritrea. And there was something about Daniel which I couldn't quite uh, work out. He was pleasant enough, he was friendly enough. It was only when we got to our hotel room that he began to... uh, explain a lot more about what was going on in the church. And I discovered, talking to somebody else after Daniel had gone, that Daniel had been arrested because he'd gone to church wearing his Air Force uniform. He was in the Air Force and uh, it had been decided that that was against the law. And he'd been put in prison for three years. And what Daniel said to me, again I've got the words here, um, the best thing about being in prison... I don't know about you, I'm not sure I would start any sentence about this situation as the best thing about being in prison. The best thing about being in prison was that I had the chance to talk to hundreds of people about Jesus that I would not have otherwise met. That's an interesting and challenging statement, isn't it? I don't know how you would feel. I would feel outraged by the injustice of having been arrested for going to church wearing an Air Force uniform. He saw it as an opportunity to speak to people. What I discovered from colleagues afterwards was uh, he had been so insistent on talking about Jesus to people that actually he spent two years of his three year prison sentence in solitary confinement because they wanted to stop him talking about Jesus. I couldn't multiply that story since I've joined Open Doors. People have been in prison. Uh, one of my colleagues visited a church in a prison because the authorities had put uh, three women in prison in Indonesia and what they'd set about doing was inviting their friends to join them on a Sunday and many of the prisoners had joined the church. God works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. So that's part of the reality. Here's another part of the reality. Rami Ayad ran a Bible bookshop. The problem was that it was in Gaza, which is not the best place to run a Bible bookshop. 2007, He was kidnapped and his wife, two children, were left for two or three days wondering what had happened to him. The last thing they heard from him was a phone call to his mother that he made saying he would be with the people for a little time. He was with them for a little time. His body was found two days later and it was dumped out in the street. He'd been shot and he'd been stabbed. And Pauline was expecting their third child and the baby was born. And the baby was named Sama And uh, Sama is the Arabic word for heaven because she wanted the baby to know that dad was in heaven. I get quite emotional telling these stories. I don't think you can engage with the reality of what is happening to people whose faith costs the most around our world. If you're not moved by it, I suspect that I have to have a conversation just about where you are yourself in your walk with Christ. I find it immensely challenging every day to discover the next story of somebody who has gone through this kind of experience. And uh, this is one that I put in because it's particularly topical at the moment. Uh, Shi Wee Han, he ran a bookshop too. His problem partly was that his bookshop was very close to the Olympic Stadium in Beijing, and so he was uh, arrested. Um, He also was running several businesses under his... (laughs) The name of his trading company was Holy Spirit Trading, which may have been a bit of a clue to the authorities as to what was going on. Um, so he was accused of printing Christian literature without permission of the government, arrested in November 2007, released for lack of evidence, rearrested in March 2008, um, illegally tried because the time went past when he should have gone to court. Um, he was then put in prison. He was given a sentence of three years. He's lost 20 kilograms of weight since his detention. His diabetes has not had any treatment while he's been in prison. He's due to be released in about two weeks' time. If you've made any memories in your prayers, we're praying at Open Doors at the moment that that promise to release him will be honoured. And We campaigned to not get him sent to prison at all. Sometimes campaigning doesn't have the desired effect. Our campaign meant that the British ambassador in uh, Beijing sent a British embassy official to his trial um, and witnessed the trial. But Shi Weihan is still in prison. He hasn't seen his daughters in that period of time. He's due to be released. Let's pray that he is released. That was the price he paid for his desire to get the Bible into hands of people in China. And I haven't met this woman, but my wife met this woman uh, She's on the board of Release International, which is another persecuted church agency. She went to visit uh, people in Nigeria a few years ago, and this is Tabitha who she met there. Nigeria is one of those places where in the north of Nigeria there is the clash of different groups, uh, some of them from a Muslim uh, basis, and they're clashing with the Christians in the north of Nigeria. And my wife went to travel because the... uh, They were doing a work amongst the widows as Open Doors has been doing and she was told that she'd be meeting some women who'd been widowed as a result of the violence in that part of the world. She went into a church building and was told this is where the widows were meeting and when the door opened and she went in there were 450 women gathered every one of whom had seen their husbands or had their husband murdered in the previous 18 months. Most of them were the widows of pastors. On the day that their husband was murdered was the day they also lost they living in some cases their homes'm not being the church didn't immediately throw them out but you'll understand the difficulty and so open doors has had a ministry in trying to support these women in very practical ways as release has my wife was here she make sure I got that mentioned as well It's not the agency that matters but here are people who because of their identified as Christians who have paid a price and in some ways, the people who survive pay a different kind of price. Tabitha has to find a way of earning a living. Her husband was only identified because her son recognised the socks that he'd seen his dad put on that morning. So this is some of the reality that is going on in our world. And in a world, on a World Mission Sunday we have to say to us, what does this say to us about how we think about the Bible and how we think about mission? And one of the things that I've realised and discovered and been exploring more and more since I joined Open Doors is this simple fact, that if you want to understand what the New Testament is trying to say to the people who read it, one of the starting points that's a really good starting place is to realise it was written by persecuted believers for persecuted believers, the people who originally got the Gospels, the letters, so, the people who were facing exactly the same things that many people are facing in our world. They knew what it was to be concerned about the knock at the door. They knew what it was to be thrown into prison. Have you ever wondered why so much space is given to the trial of Jesus in the Gospels? There's all sorts of potential reasons. I'm quite convinced that one of the reasons is that the Gospel writers wanted to show people who were facing the possibility of being put on trial for Christ how Jesus himself had experienced that. I think that's part of a reality for that, and so I think this is—I don't know—it's an insight to you, it was an insight to me because as I've been rereading the New Testament, as I've been writing Bible notes about it, one of the filters I now try and apply is: what would these verses mean to somebody who faced that kind of reality? Why was it written for them? What would you make of a verse in our society as opposed to a verse? written to Timothy by Paul. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a concern in the New Testament, which you could follow through from lots of different verses, to recognise that persecution is not abnormal for Christians. It actually should be considered Normal Now, if you're a cynic, you'd say, well, of course, that's why Paul would write, because he's writing to people who face it. He wants them to realise that this is the price they will have to pay. I'm not sure that I want to be cynical. I don't want to be cynical about what Paul wrote. I think he was professing something very profound here, that when we live for Jesus, one of the results of that will be we will encounter opposition. I praise God for the freedom that we have to worship and to express our faith in this country. It is a very valuable thing. I am not one of those who would glibly go around saying it would be good for the church to have a bit of persecution, because I wouldn't wish that on anybody, and I think we need to be careful what we pray for. But I wasn't going to tell this story, but I will tell it because it's just coming to my mind again. I was so challenged by the story that, I think it's Ron boyle who wrote that book I mentioned, told about being in China with a group of church leaders from uh, Europe and the Chinese church leader said to this group of church leaders what wounds have you suffered for Christ this week? I don't know about you, can you imagine sitting in a room with this guy who's a Chinese church leader there was a kind of, I imagine, a slightly kind of eyes cast down shuffling of the feet because it's one of those questions that's a bit hard to answer but the point of the story was this they began to explore. One minister came back challenged by the fact that this guy in China took that verse seriously and he started to talk to the elders in his church about the reason why their church was not being persecuted. And out of that experience came the realisation that maybe what they had done had settled for defining how they lived for Jesus in a way that was very safe. And they started to pray and to seek God for what were the challenges that were facing their particular community, their particular society. And they realised that actually they were in an area where one of the big major social problems was the dealing of drugs. Outside the church was where one of the drug dealers used to park the car and deliver the drugs. So they decided that maybe they ought to start standing for Jesus in this particular situation. They chose an interesting way of doing it. They went and stood by the car and started praying You can imagine this did not go down terribly well. But they were praying that God would intervene in this particular evil. And then they began to experience persecution because the drug dealers weren't very impressed by the interest the church was taking in what they were doing. And to cut a long story short, I'm now told that in that church they point to the bullet hole in the window and they remember that there are wounds that churches can suffer for Christ. Does that make sense as a story? It was the realisation that sometimes we can be, we can define how we are a Christian in terms of how safe we want to be. Brother Andrew said to me the other week when I was interviewing him uh, for an article in the magazine, he said, the church could end persecution overnight. Actually, the church could end persecution overnight. He said, if we stop talking about Jesus, we would end persecution overnight. If people stop trying to share their faith with other people, then nobody's bothered. They'll leave Christians to get on with doing their own religious stuff in a church building or a school building, whatever it may be. But it's when Christians take the message out of the church buildings and out of the place where we worship and start trying to apply the principles and the uh, the belief in Jesus, start trying to tell people that actually the answer to many of life's problems, all of life's problems are found in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That becomes offensive. It becomes offensive in all sorts of societies. It becomes offensive in pluralistic societies. It becomes offensive in totalitarian societies. Because Christians, by constantly telling people they need to know Jesus, are reminding everybody there's a higher allegiance than the, than the allegiance to the state. And the state doesn't tend to like that. And we know that, because here we are, we're in Oxford. There's a memorial not far away from here, to people who said there was a higher authority than the state. And they were burnt at the stake for it. Just sadly, it was other Christians who did it everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'll try not to tell a different story for every slide. So when you read the New Testament you come to verses like this which make out an enormous sense in the context of the kind of pressures and the persecution that people are facing. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This was the reality of the church. We often, I've heard people say, wouldn't it have been great to have been around the early church? It would have been great in all sorts of ways. It would have been great actually to discover people as I've had the privilege of meeting and I find enormously encouraging to know there are people who will hold on to their faith when every rational reason says it would be best to drop it because you'd have a much quieter life. I do not understand how there can be a kind of prosperity gospel alive in our world if you read the New Testament people didn't get prosperity from following Jesus. They got death, they got affliction, they got imprisonment. That is not my understanding of prosperity but the promise of Jesus is to those who follow him that whatever happens to people, he will be with them. But not that he will take away every problem and every challenge. And that verse could be the verse that could apply to a persecuted church in our world. And the message version of the Bible, the New Testament, goes on in that passage to say this, what they did to Jesus they do to us, trial and torture, mockery and murder, What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. The New Testament writers were convinced that persecution and suffering was not a denial of the reality of faith. They were convinced it was the authenticity of faith. They were following Jesus who had gone to the cross they saw it as what we would find very hard to understand, a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. Have you noticed, even in these verses, there is something about taking hold of the fact that if they did that to Jesus, that's what they'll do to his followers. But it's regarded, and the writers regard it as a privilege, to discover that in the midst of all of those things, the life of Jesus is received. The Bible The New Testament does not promise simply a participation in the death and the suffering of Jesus. It reminds us that it's through the death and suffering of Jesus that life becomes possible. Eternal life that we can all share in. And that is part of, that is the mission of the church, to share the life of Jesus. And the history of world mission is the history of people who have risked everything for the sake of the Gospel. They've risked their own lives I can remember talking to people who, in the Baptist Missionary Society, could take you to the graveyards in Congo and show you the people who took the Gospel there. Average age on the gravestones, 27 years old. Most of them survived for not more than one or two years and people kept coming because they thought the Gospel of Jesus Christ was worth sharing. They didn't die because of persecution, they didn't die because of illness, but the principle was the same. They thought that this Gospel of life was something worth dying for. I just wanted to pick up relatively briefly some thoughts from the life of Peter and things he had to say. Peter knew all about um, persecution in a whole variety of ways. He was the closest witness to the trial of Jesus. Peter also knew what it was that under the fear and pressure of persecution to be prepared to deny Jesus. I don't want to give to you the picture that all across the world the persecuted church is full of people who whatever happens will not deny Jesus because some do. I don't know about you, to me the amazing thing is that many don't. I can remember um, when I was uh, quite, quite young, I think I was about six or seven, one of my father's friends uh, came to the house And some of you look as if you might just be old enough to remember a guy called Geoffrey Bull. Geoffrey Bull had been arrested in Tibet as a missionary in 1950 when the Chinese army invaded and for a year he was tortured and brainwashed in an attempt to get him to deny his faith. And uh, he came to visit the house after he'd come back and he'd written a book about that experience. So in the Christian world he was a, a kind of, had become a mission celebrity. I can remember reading his story I was old enough just about to have been able to read the story when he came to the house I was a bit amazed to discover that this guy that survived all this was about 5 foot 2 inches tall with big pebble glasses he was the most unheroic Superman figure I'd ever seen but I remember that one of the things I'd done was I'd already done a deal with God and said if anybody ever tortures me I'll say anything but I won't mean it I thought I'd get in my excuse first in case that ever happened Peter had known what it was like to face the prospect of suffering and to deny his Lord. And of course he was reminded of that when the uh, cockerel crew on that morning. And Peter writes in his letter, the first Peter, to people, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. Peter, who became this founding pillar of the Christian church, one of the apostles had this role. He wrote to people, anxious that they should know that when they, in, interestingly, insisted that suffering was not the point, the whole theme of this little bit of the letter is that if you suffer because you've done something wrong, that's legitimate. The authorities have every right to punish people who are criminals, but if you suffer because you've done the right thing in following Jesus, then that is a different thing. that that was a distinction that he felt it was important to make to them. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. For Christ also suffered. He'd been first-hand witness of that. He knew what it was like to fear. I wonder what he felt when he was writing, <coughs> when he was writing those words to those people. I suspect he was acutely conscious of what he'd been through himself. But he had learned, as he'd faced similar things, future, that as he'd... Face that in his walk with Christ after the resurrection, he had learnt and with authority could say do not fear, for Christ also suffered. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because those who have suffered in their bodies are done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come out on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed same thing Paul Peter same idea sharing in the suffering of Christ and being finding joy in the midst of suffering you know one of the fantastic things that we can discover through our partnership with the persecuted church, it is possible to live lives full of joy in the face of tension, pressure, and suffering. That's an incredibly important lesson to learn, and not an easy one, and not a glib one. So then, writing to should not with Jesus Christ in their society, in their community by the threat of persecution. And then he says do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, on the contrary repay evil with blessing. I was looking at a video that had been recorded in Nigeria just this year a pastor who moved from his ruined church that had been burnt down To the mass grave where many of his congregation had been buried following a massacre which saw 500 Christians killed. His wife was amongst those in that mass grave and he stands there and he says I have learnt to forgive those that did this. And do you know how powerful that is in terms of the gospel? I'm not pretending it's an easy thing. I remember when I was speaking in my own church just up the road in, in Vista not that long ago And a woman coming up to me saying, are you really saying that I have to forgive people if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus? And I had no idea what background thought was in her mind when she said that. But I know that for many people, they have a little list, it may be a big list of people, they will never ever be able to forgive because of what they did to them. Sadly, in churches, it's sometimes people in the same church who did something to them. And it is just humbling but also challenging to see a pastor looking at a mass grave of his congregation including his wife and said, I have learned to forgive. That's part of the challenge. But it's also part of what makes the gospel the gospel. That's what good news is about. And that's why the good news is worth sharing because it's good news because people who once hate it can learn to love and take these sort of verses seriously. And then Peter wrote, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. My guess is that you may have come across that verse before. It's one of the standard verses that people will use to help encourage people to be trained in evangelism, to know how to witness. And I think there's, it has relevance to that, of course, but I think the fascinating thing to me is that in the context of persecution, going back to the idea that uh, the Bible was written in the context of persecution. It's just an interesting challenge about how we understand um, that challenge. I'm just trying to find a piece of paper which has got something else on it, but I don't seem to have got it. But the person I'm going to refer to, the context of this is, what happens if you have to explain the the reason for the hope that you have if you're in front of an Iranian court? These two young women were arrested in Iran Um, about 18 months ago they found themselves being challenged about why as Muslim women they were claiming to have become Christians the judge said to them how can you claim to have heard from God what right do you have to claim that God will speak to you do you know what their answer was to the judge in that court they said what right do you have to suggest that God can't speak to who he wants to speak to I think those two women showed an enormous amount of courage in that situation. They knew what it was to give an answer for the hope that was in them. They were sent to prison. I could go with more and more stories of of people, particularly women, in Iran, who have faced the reality and the threat of torture. One woman I have met who was told that if she didn't uh, renounce her faith in Christ, She would be raped every day by the prison guards till she changed her mind. That's the reality of what is going on in Iran. The tragedy is that Mariam and Marzia, these two women, are safe, but they're only safe because they've had to flee from Iran. I say it's tragic, because one of the things that the regime is undoubtedly trying to do is in one sense force the Christians who are being so unhelpful in wanting to talk about Jesus out of the country. Same thing is going on in Iraq. Baroness Cox was asking questions in Parliament uh, in the House of Lords this week about what is happening to Christians in Iraq. One of the ultimate uh, ironies and deep tragedies of what's happened in Iraq over the past uh, seven, years since the, uh, is it seven years since the invasion, since the invasion anyway. There are now less than half the Christians in Iraq are still there. Over half have left the country because the uh, pressure the threats, the reality of persecution have been so great. And of course last week was another expression of that when the church was attacked in uh, Baghdad and over 50 Christians were killed. So what I've been doing particularly and been involved in in the last uh, few months is this campaign called Right to Believe. And it just picks up uh, this reality of beaten Harris taken to court, the daily risk for millions of Christians denied basic religious freedoms. And part of what we can do is to be concerned for people enough to want to do something to make a difference. Across the world, millions of Christians are denied their basic right to religious liberty. And they're looking to us to walk with them on our knees in prayer, on our feet in action. Why should we be concerned to think about doing that? Because a church that is persecuted is a church that can still speak up for Jesus. The same interview I had with Brother Andrew. He was insistent that he did not start what has become open doors because he wanted to help persecuted Christians, full stop. But because he wanted to strengthen the church so the church could continue to witness to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a subtle difference between those things. It's not about seeing persecuted Christians as victims who need our help, but to see them as being people on the front line of the mission of the church who need to be strengthened so they can continue to have the courage and the resources to share Jesus Christ. It's an important distinction, but it's a very important distinction. The challenge to strengthen the church. And this is part of how we can be involved. Not the actual woman who said this, it's too dangerous to show her picture, but she said, today we are leaders of a small house group of Uzbek Christians. Recently, most of our furniture was confiscated to pay for a fine for meeting without registration, having Bibles in our home. Next time they charge us, we may go to jail. She does not have the right of religious freedom that we enjoy. I was in Egypt the other week. Under Sharia, Islamic law, you can never leave Islam and become a Christian because I went to court to request this change, I received death threats. Even my attorneys have been threatened. Every person in Egypt carries an identity card. Their identity card identifies them amongst other things as to whether they're a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. And if you apply to change from Christian or Jew to Muslim, it can go through in 24 hours. If you apply to change from Muslim to Christian, then uh, it's never happened. And the guy who, again, it's uh, it's not his real picture, it's too dangerous to show him. The guy who went to court to do it has had to leave the country because it became impossible to continue his life in Egypt. That's a basic lack of religious liberty under which uh, 10 million Christians are experiencing. And in Egypt, the interesting thing is, I've got to keep an eye on the clock because I've got lots more stories I could tell, but you know in Egypt, they were rejoicing because they'd heard a message via somebody who'd been arrested and the policeman that was interrogating them. Muslims are coming to faith in Christ in Egypt in very large numbers. God is speaking to them in dreams and in visions. He's also speaking to them through satellite television. You couldn't get two more extremes, could you, communication. They're not sure how many people, because if you read Secret Believers, you'd find out that many Muslims who come to know Jesus, it remains a secret. It's too dangerous to tell anybody. But apparently when this policeman was interrogating this particular woman, he uh, got very exasperated that she wouldn't answer the questions. He was asking who it was that had told her about Jesus. And then he suddenly said, we know somebody must be telling Muslims about Jesus because two million Muslims have become Christians. So the church rejoiced to know that in the police uh, stations of Egypt, they believe two million Muslims have become Christians. That's a dramatic thing that's going on across uh, the Middle East but no freedom Nigeria will refer to one day an angry group of Muslims came and destroyed our church no one would protect us instead the authorities gave us seven days to tear our church down Nigeria has a massive Christian church but it's massive in the south of the country in the north under different laws this is the kind of discrimination that is faced by many people and there isn't time to go into detail, maybe if people have got questions about this, we could do that over lunch, but just to say that right at this moment um, the, once again, the defamation of religions resolution has been uh, introduced to the United Nations General Assembly the Organisation of Islamic Conference, 57 countries with majority uh, Islamic populations have introduced this concept that religions need to be protected and defamation should become a crime. And um, People of all faiths and none uh, in the West recognise that actually it's people that have rights, religions given rights becomes very dangerous because it means that the law courts and the state have to define what's acceptable religious belief. And on that basis it becomes a basis on which the current laws which discriminate against Christians would actually become part of human rights legislation. So we have felt this was a moment this year to resist this particular resolution. It's been introduced every year for the last ten years. It's never been passed by significant enough votes to to move forward in the process of becoming law, if that makes sense to you. But last year, the number of votes for it started to decline, and we began a campaign to see if we could get it defeated so that it would go off the agenda and we could find new ways of dealing with religious uh, uh, hatred in our world. So uh, we launched a petition. We optimistically hoped that we might see 100,000 people around the world signed the petition. Currently, there's 170,000 from over 69 countries have signed the petition. And if you want to do that, you can do that today. It's on the table at the back and there's a leaflet with more information about it. It's one way in which we can do something to make a difference. Giving makes a difference. It strengthens the church. I don't want to go into detail about that. That's entirely, the church will have its own policies. But I do want to emphasise that part of what we can do to strengthen the church for world mission is to make sure that we give in a way that encourages local churches, local Christians to be able to witness for Jesus. They are the ones who do mission in their own communities. We can support them through mission. But strengthening the church needs to be the aim of what we can do. And then we can pray. Paul wrote in Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. If any of the stories have touched you this morning, if any of the understanding of what it means to be a persecuted church has touched you, please, prayer is one of the most vital. It is the vital resource that we have. And all my colleagues, and I can testify to it as well, when we go and meet people in these churches, and say what what do you need the first thing they say is please remember us in prayer they are desperate to know that they are remembered that they are not forgotten one of the things that you can do Paul knew that prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare pray hard and long pray for your brothers and sisters and that just takes me back to the passage that was read and I am now honestly Going to finish. That passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about the body. My guess is that that passage is one you may have heard before. It's usually applied, quite rightly, to the local church. But I think it has a dimension for the global church. Because the church is one body. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. We had a guy from Palestine come to speak to us at a staff gathering just down the road from here not that long ago and he emphasised that he was a bit concerned about the description of the persecuted church because it implied that there was a church that was persecuted and there's a church that isn't. I've even seen people write about the church in the free world or the free church and I've resisted that in all my writings at Open Doors. You see, there's only one church and it is a persecuted church. We belong to the persecuted church. We may not be experiencing persecution ourselves, but our brothers and sisters are. And if this family thing means anything, just think of the examples we have in our own society. Who shouts loudest when a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter is arrested unjustly in another part of the world? It's the family, isn't it? Remember all the campaigns there's been about people who have been arrested? in prison and the family keep hammering on about justice it's an interesting picture isn't it there are members of our family being treated unjustly all around the world and we can raise our voices to God we can raise our voices to the authorities on their behalf because they're part of the family because it's one body there isn't a persecuted church that's out there somewhere there is a church of God carrying out his mission purposes and we're part of it And part of the privilege we have is sharing with them. Every part suffers with one part. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices. Now you're the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it.